You're listening to a message from our Sunday morning service at Hayes Hills Baptist Church, where we seek to bring life-changing hope to an ever-changing people through the unchanging gospel. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit hayeshills.com. Our prayer is that this message would serve to equip and empower you to live as a follower of Jesus in conjunction with your belonging to a local body of believers. Well, we're currently walking through our series on 1 Corinthians, which we'll be in for the majority of this year. We'd encourage you to follow along, and we hope that this message serves as a blessing to you. We are continuing our series of 1 Corinthians this morning, um, and we are picking up in chapter 6, six, which is really a passage about sex and sexuality. And uh, as soon as I say that, I know some of you might be cringing a little bit um, because maybe you're a parent with some younger kids here, and I just want you to know I'm going to do my best to keep this PG uh, but still use the language that's presented um, to us in the Scriptures here, Um, so addressing these things. And so we're going to use words that are here in 1 Corinthians like sexuality. Uh, how God designed sex and sexuality for good, the word pornea, where we get our English word pornography and sexual immorality. And so, I'll do my best to keep things mild, uh, but understand if at any point um, you feel uncomfortable or you need to step out with a kiddo, please feel free to do that. I mean, we want this place to be a place that we can have families and kids in as well, but, but you know your children best, and so I encourage you to, um, to do what you would need to. And my hope is that um, some of this will leave room for more conversations for all of us to have um, with our kids um, and even our spouses uh, on this topic. Um, so, Corinthians chapter 6. I guess I, um, as Pastor, Pastor Aaron is out on vacation, I guess I'm thanking him for this text that we land in this morning. Um, so I'm going to do a lot, uh, I'm going to do a fair bit of kind of theological lifting and groundwork, and I'm going to do that as kind of as quickly as we can. Um, and so to give us context to what Paul is engaging in in 1 Corinthians 6. And he's, really, he's coming from a, a, a Jewish and a biblical understanding of, of sexuality and our bodies. And so he has this as his groundwork and baseline for where he intersects with the Corinthians in this text. And so I want to take us back so we have that same view that Paul would. Um, and so we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 2. So if you want to flip back there with me, I'm going to do this as quickly as I can. Um, but there's a little bit here. So Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. We'll read this for us. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. 
So in the, in the beginning, God creates the heavens, meaning the space, the solar system, the stars, the planets, the moons, the earth, mountains, rocks, oceans, trees. God created the universe. And then as you read the story, God fills and populates the universe with really three types of creatures, animals, angels, and humans. And so quickly, animals, animals are purely kind of physical, meaning animals don't have a soul. Llamas, giraffes, they don't go around asking, you know, why am I here? What is the telos of my being? Um, animals are only physical creatures, part of this physical creation. Angels, on the other hand, are spirits. Um, so yes, angels can sometimes appear in physical form, but angels by definition are spiritual, meaning pure spirits, spirit beings. Uh, but out of the tens of thousands of creatures, animals, angels in the universe, God creates, at the pinnacle of his creation, humanity, male and female, humans, and they are this hybrid of, of both the physical and God gives them souls, the spiritual, and they are integrated beings. Pastor J.D. Greer uses a nerdy word to describe this. I like nerdy words. Uh, he calls it a psychosomatic, psychos uh, psychosomatic union, uh, which means that our soul, psycho, um, and body, soma, are one. And you really can't separate the one from the other. As an aside, yes, when we die, we go, our spirits go to be with the Lord. But Scripture makes it clear that this is, this is a, an uncomfortable kind of a state for us. We're longing to be clothed with our bodies, for them to be resurrected. And so that's what we're made for. Our beings are both soul and physical body. That's what makes up who we are, both our minds, our intellects, our hands, our feet, Every, and our spirits, every part of us is who we are and how God made you to be. So this is going to be hugely important for what Paul is speaking with the Corinthians about. And then also as part of our humanity is our sexuality. So keep reading here, Genesis 2 verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that a man should be alone. Amen. I will make a helper fit for him, which in Hebrew can basically be translated, uh, men need help. <laughs> and that, by the way, is a theological fact. <laughs> we need help suited for us. Okay, now skip down to verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs, and he closed up in its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into woman and brought her to the man. So one of the first stories in the Bible is really a love story. And, and who's the author of this love story? God. God brings the woman to the man, and he writes poetry. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, 
and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So, I mean, can you imagine this no guilt, no regrets, no shame, no insecurity, naked and no embarrassment, nothing, just absolute innocence. That's, that's how the Bible starts with the story of humanity. God creates male and female. God creates marriage. God creates sexuality. And so, I want you to notice two things about our sexuality uh, before we move on. First is, um, and if you're taking notes, first is sex is beautiful. So, reading the story, who creates sex? God. God creates it. Not Hollywood, not modern culture, long way before any of that. I mean, seriously think about it. Before any of that, God in His genius, in His brilliance, is the one who thinks up our sexuality and sex itself and His design for it, to enjoy for our union in marriage and to procreate Uh, On the canvas of all creation, God sets up male and female, And and the command He gives them is be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. I love how C.S. Lewis talks about how how we are cre- how we create like God creates in some fashion, just in lesser ways. That God loves to create. I mean, spends so much articulating His grand creation to us. And He loves to create things that create other things. And so, this is one of the beautiful ways in which we image God in, in the wonderful ways that He has designed sex before the fall, or designed it, period, is, is, is so that, I mean, and everything echoes of this in the universe all of His creation is reproducing, is having one after the other, and He wants us to do that in even more special ways than anybody else can. So, it, understand that we were sexual beings before we were sinful. God designed us that way. Adam and Eve enjoyed one another in perfect innocence. So, um, sexuality and sex does not mean bad, dirty, unholy, or just physical. Absolutely not. Sex and our sexuality is beautiful, healthy, good, and right part of our humanity, how God designed it. And so, the second thing that I think we need to understand is sex is also powerful. The first sentence of the Bible about sex says, um, in verse 24, they will become echad in Hebrew, or, or one flesh is how the English translates it. They, um, <clears throat> echad, here, is, it's emotive, it's vivid. Echad is when two separate and distinct human beings become one. Echad is when 
two humans at the deepest level come together. And so it pushes two souls together, two souls into one, which is why in the story of the Bible, the only context that's strong enough to handle this this fierce-like, raw, untamed power is marriage. A man, verse 24, will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, marriage, and they will become one flesh, achad. By marriage, the Bible means that they are together in a lifelong bond, covenant, not temporary, not three years, but as long as you both shall live for richer or for poorer, for better, or for for what? Worse. And in the hard times, in the good times, through the ups, through the downs, we're together side by side. It's that kind of covenant relationship that's the only context strong enough to handle the power of sexuality as created by God. Sex is beautiful, and sex is powerful. So, with all that in the back of your mind, let's turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I will read here our passage starting in verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So we're in Corinth. This Greco-Roman city that uh, Paul had planted a church in about three years ago, and so now he's writing um, to this church. And one of the macro problems in this church is what Paul calls porneia, which is the Greek word where we get the English word pornography. But in Paul's day, porneia means sexual immorality, meaning any and all forms of sexuality outside of the Genesis, one man and one woman together in marriage. The, um, the, I'll just dive right into verse 12. Verse 12 begins with this. 
And it has quotes here. All things are lawful for me. And the NIV translates it this way. All things are permissible for me. So question, is that true or false? What do you think? Maybe I hear it. So all things are permissible for me, or all things are lawful. I'll, I'll give you a running start here. If we go just a couple verses before, in verse 11, uh, and even verse 9, 10, and 11, uh, Paul is making it clear that there are sins and there are those that will not inherit the kingdom of God. Um, and, and what's going on here is a little bit interesting. Um, and it's a little slippery to navigate as well, because what Paul does was something that was kind of common in his, in his day, and that's why we have these quotes in our text as well, is he engages in kind of an imaginary conversation with the Corinthians. Um, and, and this is a quote that was a really popular, uh, would have been a popular saying or aphorism of the day. And so he's using it as just a point to engage and kind of counterpoint with it as well. So this is, this is not something that he intends to want to agree with. Uh, there may be a, sen- a sense in which, yes, uh, there's, there's uh, yeah, the, the sense is um, that, no, we don't come to Christ and do whatever we want. Oh, sure, maybe it's legal, um, the context that Paul's speaking to here, uh, you had even the phrase Corinthianized was used as, as a, a slang term for prostitute. Um, there was so much prostitution going on in that particular culture. Uh, some historians would view it as kind of a modern-day Amsterdam or Las Vegas of that city. And so Paul wants to engage in that, and, and he hears what some of the Christians are picking up, and he hears what's common in that day as well, and it's this phrase, all things are permissible for me, or all things are lawful for me. Uh, and Paul says, um, not all things are helpful, guys. And then he quotes the same one again, all things are lawful for me, and then he says, but I will not be dominated or mastered by anything. So he's using these uh, same lines, these same quotes twice and say, okay, all things are lawful for me, but not everything's beneficial, not everything's helpful, and I will not be dominated by, um, I will not be dominated or mastered by anything. And uh, which kind of literally means I'm not going to be brought under the power of anything, and in, my, in, and in Paul's mind, except Christ. I'm not going to be a slave to anything else. I will not be dominated, mastered um, by anything. And so I think, I think Paul's getting at something that really Christians need to understand and we can lose sight of. Um, and sometimes when we're talking about our freedoms in Christ, and doesn't, doesn't Scripture say that we're free from the law, that we're free in Christ? So can't we do anything? Um, isn't it permissible or lawful to do anything? And almost all the time when the biblical authors are speaking about our freedoms, 
They're speaking about it in contrast to being enslaved to sin. We have broken the bondage of sin, so we are free from sin, from being under the control of sin, not free to sin. Christ does not redeem us so that we can be free to sin, but that we are free from being under the control or the enslavement of sin because sin enslaves people. And many of you can probably testify to that from your own experiences of how sin turns into patterns. Patterns turn into habits. Habits into what the Bible would call strongholds, meaning places where the enemy has power over you, and you want to stop, but you cannot. What modern psychology would call addictions, where you're addicted and you want, you want out from beneath the power and the sway of that sin. Paul's point is, listen, when you think about freedom, it's not, hey, we're free to go and do whatever we want, because you're going to be a slave and mastered by those sins that you seek to serve and gratify. They will just want more and more and more from you, and they will not give up. So I will not be mastered and dominated by anything because I am free, because Christ has set me free and broken me from the bondage of sin. So Paul's taking that on with these, this first saying here. Then we have a second saying, uh, verse 13. Food is meant for the stomach, and stomach for food. Uh, my Bible in the ESV, it stops the quote or the saying right there, which I, I think is a mistake. Some translations extend it to the end of the sentence. I'm going to argue that I think it goes all the way to the end of the sentence there. Um, and so, it includes this second part, and God will destroy both one and the other. So, it's, you have Corinth, it's about 50 miles from, um, from, from Athens and kind of Greek philosophy, and what was really popular then, and I'd argue is still has a quite a stronghold today as well, is just pl platonic ideology. So, Plato, Socrates, um, and these, Aristotle, these guys, you add this plat platonic idea that, uh, just to super simplify it, uh, is the body is bad and temporary and the spirit is good, or physical things. Physical things are bad, uh, spiritual things are eternal and good, and we should strive for those, and he applies it to our bodies, humanity even as well, that, that you get phrases like this of, you know what? Food is meant for the stomach, stomach for the food. It's just a physical thing. You know, you eat what you want to when you're hungry. Same thing with, with, with sexual promiscuity as well. You know, if I want to engage in that, that's just a physical activity because we know God's going to destroy both one and the other, so they're all going to burn up anyway, so it doesn't really matter what you do in your body. So that's what Paul's confronting, that very idea Platonic idea of dualism. And <clears throat> um, this idea that Plato would teach of the immortality of the soul over against the body, which is that the real you is inside 
That's what's important. It's, it's who you really are is inside. Um, anybody hear that sort of notion today still? 2,500 years after Plato still being intermingled, I think, in many ways. Um, and, and the idea of, oh, I want to go to the afterlife so I can be a free spirit with gods in the afterlife or with Jesus in the afterlife. And, or, um, yeah, is the real us underneath our skin in our soul, uh, and it's really our souls that are eternal. Um, and so I think that's still permeates in the backs of our mind that many Christians would argue more like Plato than Paul or more Greek than Hebrew, um, that the real me is my soul, not my body. And Paul wants to say, no, every part, God has made you psychosomatic in a union which you are body and soul. And then he's going to further that argument here for us as well. In verse 13, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, pornea, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So, Paul wants to bring the Corinthians back to a biblical theology here that the real you, this idea that the real you is not your soul, but, but it is. The real, you, the real you is your soul, your body, your spirit, every single ounce of who you are. And your body is for the Lord and the Lord for your body. So what does that mean? Um, that, that, makes, that means your relationship with the Lord takes place in your physical body. It's not just Jesus lives in my heart, and we think about it just in this sense of, of okay, uh, it's just about our souls. No, Jesus is coming to take up residence in who we are, body and soul. So what we do in the body makes a difference and matters for all of eternity. It's not a temporary thing. Um, in verse 14, he continues, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. So Paul's logic. By the power of God, God raised the Lord. He raised Jesus from the dead in a body. One of the first things we hear from Jesus when he's back is, Hey, do you have anything to eat? Maybe dying and raising from the dead makes you kind of hungry. But the point is also he has a physical body. And he has taken that on for all of eternity future. He will forever be the God-man, embodied. God cherishes the body and the soul, all of you. That is what he will redeem and is coming back for, that we would have perfected bodies. I mean, we could speak about all the ways in which that is powerful, of the ways we are broken in so many ways physically will be made right in just the way the Lord wants them. 
and we will have new and glorified bodies. Verse 15, he goes on with questions. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So, you are connected to Christ. Um, And he, he makes this point in verse 17 as well. You are joined, married to Christ, married to the Lord. So, he continues with this question. Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? What's Paul's answer? Never! Exclamation point! No way! Or do you not know that that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. For it is written, back to Genesis, the two will become one flesh. Now, I think this is fascinating, what Paul does right here. He makes, he makes this really bold, uh, kind of daring argument and move here. Paul claims, based on Genesis 2, that when a man and woman come together and they have sex that they become echad, one flesh, that they become echad, regardless of whether they're husband and wife. Or they're a man and woman for 20 bucks. Or a boyfriend and a girlfriend. The magnificent power and mystery. I mean, the elevation that God gives of sex and sexuality. I mean, I don't, I don't get the claims that, oh, the Bible has such a low view of sex. I, I mean, the, the world's view of sexuality is, is what? It's just physical. It's just biological. It's, it's only momentary coupling of bodies that are coming together for their own release. It's, it's about your urges, your cravings, your, your own selfish needs. It's primal. It's uh, the other person is just an object or to simply fulfill your needs or your lust or your desires, or your cares. There's nothing permanent going on here. No, the, the biblical view of sex is huge. When you engage in any sort of pornea, you are tampering with things that God has set aside as eternally significant of our bodies that are connected to the Lord that are now mingled with a prostitute that are, that are now fractured in so many different ways. It's sex is powerful and it's beautiful and it's amazing that you are becoming one. I mean, two people, male and female, are somehow mysteriously now one. Paul speaks of this, Ephesians chapter 5, and this is a profound mystery. And I don't know if I'm, I'm talking about marriage, human marriage, or, or, or Jesus Christ to the church. 
That's why God displays marriage for the watching world. That's why our marriages proclaim and preach Scripture and the gospel to the watching world. That's why it hurts so bad, the testimony of Jesus Christ, when probably all of us know people and leaders and church leaders that have fallen in this area and the blight that it puts on the gospel itself and the trustworthiness of God's promises is massive. I mean, it's the, it's, it's the third greatest mystery that the Bible proclaims. You have the Trinity, the very being of God himself in the mysterious way in which he is one God in three persons, in infinite. And then uh, close to that, you have the incarnation of Jesus Christ, this great mystery. And then, and then you have this that we participate in, that we need to guard our sexuality with every fiber of our being because it's part of the deepest parts of who God made us to be and proclaim. <clears throat> so protect it. So that, that is all the theology, uh, and that's all the background, and that's all the scriptures that, that Paul has laid down to, to make this one black and white and crystal clear command. And here's what all of that is building to say. Verse 18, the command is flee from sexual immorality. Run for your life. And let me make a point. Whenever Scripture speaks of sin, you often hear the language of fight sin, fight temptation, resist temptation, stand your ground, um, all sorts of that imagery. But when it comes to one sin, porneia, or sexual immorality, the Bible says, flee, run for your life, retreat, don't stand, don't fight, don't stand your ground. No, you get as far away as you possibly can. Flee is what you do if you're in a crowd and you hear gunshots and people screaming. You flee. Many scholars think Paul right here has in view the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife um, back in the book of Genesis when you have Joseph, who Potiphar's wife is, keeps advancing toward him, and he keeps, she keeps saying, sleep with me, and he's absolutely not. And, and it gets to the point where he has to outright do everything he can to, to flee and to run, and it costs him massively to escape and to flee, but that's the picture. And so, that's the call from God's Word when it comes to porneia. That's the, that's the, the theological underpinnings that Paul wants you to hear and see and understand. So, so flee. I mean, I… It doesn't take long to research and pull up the statistics for pornography. 
It's not just a male issue. It's a female issue too. It's rampant. It's ubiquitous. The likelihood is that many of you may have viewed pornography or will today. And it's the sort of thing that practically I would say to you, and Paul would say to you, repent and flee. And you're not going to escape this on your own. It, it, the practical step would be bring it into the light. Tell others. Confess your sins so that people can come alongside you like I would want to. And, and even though you understand the gospel, would be able to, in the midst of that, articulate the gospel to you that Christ died for those sins too and he wants to set you free from the bondage of that. He wants you to be free. Free. Don't you want to be free? There are so many ways in which our sexuality has been broken. And so we come and we free, we flee. Whoever Potiphar's wife is in your own life, that that for females, that can be romance novels. Those are particularly uh, alluring in that sort of vein and can lead down those paths too. Um, And just the pornography stats. I will just say as a plug, I mean, for for kids, the average age now that they'll be exposed to pornography is 10.5. Parents, have conversations with your kids. We have an awesome resource in our library called God's Design for Sex, uh, ordered on Amazon, or it's a four-volume series. It's age-graded. You just read it to your kids. It'll prompt all sorts of conversations. So, um, lastly, (sighs) flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And and Paul explains that here, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Paul understands the massive implications of the coming of Jesus Christ that used to dwell in far-off places in tents, in fires, the very presence of God, Jesus says, I have now come to dwell, be Emmanuel, and to tabernacle, to be and to live inside of you. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in our bodies and our souls, because we can't, we can't divorce the two. In all of us, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The price for our broken bodies and the brokenness of our sins 
is the broken body of God himself in Jesus. That he gave his very body so that he could take all of our sins, all of our brokenness, and be the only one that could put us back together and heal us and bring restoration. I know this topic. We, we all have our own stories that may be filled with shame and guilt for the things that we have done. Or maybe even more challenging, the things that weren't our own choice that were done to us. And we wonder how, how does that move us forward? I, I can only proclaim the gospel of Jesus for broken sinners like me and like you. That that is the promise of the gospel, that all of those things that we have done, all of those injustices that have been done to us, God is going to meet all of those out. He is going to judge those. And for those who trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior from their own sins, He is going to take those on Himself and do this in this mysterious way of uniting himself to us and taking up residence in us and bringing about in only the way God can do things that are the most wicked and evil and dark things and somehow, like he did at the cross, making good out of it, bringing about beauty and pointing us to an ultimate reality of the marriage feast that we will have with the Lamb. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for the cross without which there is no hope. We thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we we whatever doubts creep into our mind, whatever, that we would look at your scriptures, we would hold fast and know that they are true. We would do the work that is needed to hold fast to Christ and to follow him and to know that deep down we were made for more than the brokenness of our own bodies in this world and all the ways in which our sexuality is affected by this as well. Father, we pray for your work in the midst of us through your body, your church that you have sent to help redeem bit by bit, person by person, pointing us to the time where you will make all things new. And we pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Hayes Hills Podcast Network. 
Feel free to follow us for more content. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit us at hayeshills.com.